This is week three of our four-week sermon series called The Moral of the Story. Uh, Throughout September, we're talking about several famous stories that only appear in the Gospel of Luke, uh, two of which have become so familiar that even even non-Christians usually recognize and know at least something about them. We started the series with one of those stories, The Good Samaritan. That was a couple of weeks ago. This week, we're going to revisit the other of those two very famous stories that most everybody knows. Reagan preached on it last week, uh, and in case you weren't here, uh, I'm going to go ahead and reread most of it now, and we'll come back to the rest of it later. Uh, again, it's a familiar one. It's a classic. It's a, one of Luke's greatest hits, one of Jesus' greatest hits. I'm going to read. It's uh, Luke chapter 15, verse, beginning with verse 11. <clears throat> I'm going to go through, like halfway through the 28th verse, and then we'll come and finish the story a little bit later. So listen, friends, for the Word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant the evangelist Luke. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's about to finish the rest of his speech, but his father interrupts. The father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. To me, this is Jesus' most famous parable, uh, maybe because this is my personal favorite of his parables. It's a story usually known as the parable of the prodigal son, and there are, there are three main characters in this story. Now, last week, Reagan focused on the younger son, uh, the, the bad son, the selfish and self-centered son, the son who asked for his inheritance early and then went to a foreign land and, and squandered it before returning home uh, to beg his father to hire him on as a servant. From the younger son's perspective, the parable of the prodigal son is about bad choices and repentance and 
grace. His brother is the older son, the, the good son, the dutiful son. This is the son who had stayed home with his father and worked on his father's estate while his little brother was off gallivanting in a foreign land and squandering daddy's money. This older son is angry that their father would welcome the prodigal home with a, a, a party. This older son could be forgiven, I think, for wondering if their father's extravagant welcome uh, does not in some way condone his, his truly hurtful behavior, the behavior of the younger son. And no doubt the older brother's feelings were hurt that their father does not even remember to invite him, the older brother, to come to the homecoming party. That had to sting. I totally get why he'd be angry because from the, the older brother's perspective, this story brings up understandable questions of fairness. Now, if you've, if you've heard this story before, which I'm guessing uh, most of us have in some form or another, you may very well identify more closely with one or the other of these two very different siblings. And if you do indeed identify with one or the other of these two very different siblings, then uh, you may very well have a, a less than favorable opinion of the other sibling. You know what I mean by this. If you identify with the prodigal son, uh, then you may very well think that the older son is just being spiteful or prideful. While if you identify uh, with the older son, then you may very well think that the, the father should have skipped the party and taken the little brother up on uh, being hired on as a servant, or at the very least, uh, given him some kind of consequence for his selfish behavior. Because that's the way we tend to think. We tend to operate in in either or categories. We tend to think that if two people are on opposite sides of an issue, then only one of them can be right. We tend to think that God should treat everyone fairly, using the air quotes here, and we, we, we tend to think that we know what fairly looks like. We tend to side with one or the other of uh, the two sons in this story, and we tend to be um, a little judgmental about the other one. But really, the main character in this story is neither of the two sons. Really, the main character in this story is the first character that Jesus mentions when he said there was a man who had two sons. There was a father who had two imperfect and, albeit in different ways, needy sons. And so, plenty of scholars refer to this as the parable of the loving father, and I tend to agree with that title because he is the true subject of this story and he's the one we're gonna focus on today. Uh, Henry Ward Beecher was a famous minister in the, in the 19th century. He's not a famous name for us today, but one biographer considers him to have been at one time the most famous man in America. He was one of the, the leading figures uh, in the founding of modern American Christianity. Unlike the the hellfire and brimstone puritanical preaching of previous generations, including his own father, Henry Ward Beecher focused on the unconditional love and healing offered by God through Christ. Uh, if you recognize the name Beecher, his big sister, Harriet Beecher Stowe, was famous in her own right as the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. These were very successful siblings. 
And Beecher once said something that's particularly relevant for our conversation today. He said, uh, we never know the love of a parent until we become parents ourselves. In other words, uh, in some ways, it's difficult for us to know just how much our own parents love us until we have children of our own. Now, I do realize that that may be a problematic sentiment for those who either choose not to or who are unable to to ha- uh, have children of their own. If that describes you, uh, I'm not in any way trying to diminish your experience. I'm sure you know how much your parents love you. But speaking from my own experience, I did not know how much I could love another human being until our two sons were born. We never know the love of a parent until we become parents ourselves. And it seems to me that's why the younger son assumes that he can only return home to the father as a servant. (laughs) He could not yet comprehend the depth of his father's love for him. And it seems to me that's why the older son could not understand why the father rejoiced in this deadbeat little brother's return. He could not yet comprehend his father's love for them both. finish the parable. So the older son's angry. There's all this revelry that he hears. He wasn't invited. He's, um, I mean, I guess ungenerously we could say he's pouting outside. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen. (laughs) Anybody ever said that to their father? I never did. (laughs) No, that's not doesn't seem very good, but anyway, he does. Listen, for all these years, I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. And I'm picturing him, arms crossed, fussing. But when this son of yours came back, (laughs) not my brother, when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, You killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and has been found. There's a a Swedish proverb that says, love me, when I least deserve it, because that is when I really need it. And I think that's a a wonderful description of the theological concept of grace. Love me when I least deserve it, because that's when I really need it. It's also, I think, a great description of advanced parenting. (laughs) Both of which, grace and advanced parenting, the father in this story models for us Because regardless of what we may think of the behavior of the two sons in this story, regardless of which son we feel like we're more like, regardless of which son's behavior we more dislike, (laughs) this this is a story about the father. And the father in this story is a metaphor for God, which should not surprise us because God is the subject of most of that book. This is a story of a father who has two children, a father who loves both of his children more than they could know, unconditionally and extravagantly, a father whose love for his children is not dependent upon what they do 
or how much they show their love for him. A father who, because of his unconditional love for his children, goes out to meet them where they are, both of them meets them where they are, and then he welcomes them lavishly back home. The younger son has made terrible mistakes, but his father rushes out to meet him. The older son begrudges his little brother's reception and is angry about his father's perceived unfairness, but his father comes to him and pleads with him to join the party. What both of his children need is, is his understanding and his unconditional love. Love me when I least deserve it because that's when I really need it. And I think the moral of this story is that's the way God loves us. God loves us unconditionally. All of us, the, the prodigals and the dutifuls, the wayward and the responsible, God loves us as we are in all of our virtue and all of our sin and all of our goodness and all of our less than goodness, those who are morally suspect and those who are smugly self-righteous. God loves us when we're at our best. God loves us when we least deserve it because that's when we really need it. And here, to get the full impact of this story, we need to, to know the setting of this story within Luke's gospel. We need to know who he's talking to, who has gathered to hear Jesus at this point. So if we go to the beginning of the 15th chapter, Luke tells us that all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. That must have been a big crowd. All of the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him. And not surprisingly, the company that Jesus keeps draws the contempt of the religious folks, whom Luke refers to as the Pharisees and the scribes. Luke tells us that seeing the collection of riffraff around Jesus, the religious folks start grumbling and complaining about the company this rabbi keeps, and it's in response to their grumbling that Jesus tells the story of the loving father, and he tells it knowing full well that the religious folk are gonna identify with the older son. He tells it knowing full well that in this story, the tax collectors and the sinners are the prodigal children. He tells it making the point that, that God loves them all. Whether or not they believe it, whether or not they think that's fair, whether or not God's unconditional grace surprises them or offends them. That's the, the moral of this story. The challenge of this story, seems to me, is that while at different times in our lives we may very well better relate to one of the two children in this story, our faith actually pushes us to identify with the Father because it's one thing to allow ourselves to be loved by God. That's an important and life-giving thing to allow ourselves, imperfect as we are, to be loved by a generous and gracious God that is foundational for our spiritual journey. That's, a, that's not just a good starting point. That's a great starting point, and we spend a lot of time teaching our kids that. But Jesus here is calling us at some point in our journeys of discipleship to start loving others as the Father has loved us. Jesus is calling us here to stop seeing the world in categories of fair and unfair, to stop thinking that some are more deserving of grace than others, to stop waiting for the, the wayward to come home groveling or the proud to get over themselves. 
in his most famous parable, Jesus is saying that as far as God is concerned, everyone is welcome, and there are no exceptions to that because he knows that we're really good at judging ourselves and maybe slightly better at judging others, (laughs) while God, on the other hand, is really good at loving us. One of the marks of Christian discipleship, one of the signs of growing maturity in the faith is that we, we grow to love others more like God loves us. There's a, a terrific book that I would uh, recommend by a guy named Henry Nowen. Um, anything by Nowen is fantastic, but he wrote a whole book on this painting. And I do know that that image is dark, uh, but the original painting is dark as well. Um, this is The Return of the Prodigal Son by Rembrandt. That's the prodigal on his knees in front of his father. That's the angry other older brother off to the side. And there are some people in the shadows that you can't see on that screen. And Nowen wrote a whole book about this. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son, A Story of Homecoming. He talks about the spirituality of this painting based on the parable. And he points out a detail that all of us who are not art aficionados might miss. And I am not an art aficionado. So the center of the, of the painting is the hands of the father. And what Nowen points out is that on them, all the light is concentrated. On them, the eyes of the bystanders are focused. Which means, in the metaphor that underlies this greatest story of Jesus, Rembrandt's masterpiece focuses on, on the hands of God. Hands that are open to embrace one who did not, by the world standards, deserve it. Hands that will run out and plead with the one who could not understand it. Hands that are open to welcome all of God's children and that model for us what Christ-like faith looks like in the flesh. Which brings me to my last point. And you may know this, um, but the word prodigal actually has more than one meaning. Uh, my American Heritage Dictionary lists as the first meaning, um, the one we usually associate with the word recklessly wasteful, as in the prodigal son. That's, that's how we normally think of this uh, word. That's how we normally title this parable. But the second definition listed, you can look this up, in your own dictionaries when you go home, or online, if you're an online person. It's the real moral of the story because it describes the love of the Father. The second definition of prodigal is profuse in giving, exceedingly abundant, which is kind of genius, which shouldn't surprise us because it's Jesus. The same word describes two of the three characters in this story, including the one Jesus wants us to emulate. So yes, may each of us be open to God's unconditional love. May we never ever forget that as we journey through life. And may each of us love prodigally, just like God loves us. Amen.